Welcome to America's Top Rebbitzins. May this class be for Rafua Shalema, for Gavriela Tova, Naomi Leah, for Lior Tovia Ben Haya Ashna, and also for Rav Shmuel Zalman Ben Hana. Please click the subscribe button to subscribe to us on the America's Top Rebbitzins YouTube page, or click follow to follow us on your broadcasting app so that you are the first to know when an inspiring new episode is posted. I'm so happy to have on today's show, Rebbitz and Sarah Yohavid Riggler. Rebbitz and Sarah Yohavid has a fascinating story. She grew up in the United States, but she started her spiritual search in India in 1968. There, she studied with a guru who was a mystic and an acclaimed Sanskrit scholar. A year later, she returned to the U.S. and she finished her degree in psychology at Brandeis University. She spent the next 15 years living in America's oldest ashram, where she practiced and taught Hindu philosophy and meditation. In 1985, Rebbe and Sarah Yohevet took a dramatic turn on her spiritual path. She moved to Jerusalem, began studying Torah, and became a highly committed observant Jew. She got married in 1987 and then had her first child at the age of 40 and her second child at the age of 46. She has now lived inside of the walled old city of Jerusalem for over 36 years. And Rebbe Tsensario Hevlet is a highly acclaimed international speaker on the subject of Jewish spirituality and practical tools for spiritual growth. She gives a wonderful marriage webinar called the Kesher Wife Webinar, which I personally had the privilege of taking. And that webinar is given through Jewish workshops. I will include the link in the podcast description if anyone is interested in taking that class. And I highly, highly recommend it. Rebs and Sario have also published several books, including her latest one. I've been here before when Souls of the Holocaust Return. Um, for if you're watching on YouTube, this is what it looks like. Um, I am almost done reading the book, and it's an amazing, amazing, amazing book. So you have accomplished so much in your life, and you share so much with others. Please tell us more about yourself and what you do. Well, years ago, I was taking a um, like a personal growth chabora with Rabbi Aryeh Niven. He said that, I mean, I my my whole last thirty five years has been focused on tikkun, and actually the Second part of my book is about uh, tikkun. McGraw said that we come into this world only to do our tikkun. But um, Rabbi Niven talked also about mission, that we also have a yiyud or a positive. A tikkun is a negative thing, it's like you're fixing something that's wrong, a bad mida or something you failed to do. Yes. But a mission is, a yiyud is on the other side, is a positive thing. I like to say that when our souls come down to this world, Hashem hands us two envelopes. One is our tikkun and one is our yiyot, our, our mission. So my mission is to help people move forward in their spiritual and personal growth and relationship to Hashem. Beautiful. And I do that in many ways. I do it by, I write books. I write for the website h.com. Sometimes write for Ami magazine. I give lectures. I'm doing a lecture tour. Uh, I'll be in California and uh, the New York, New Jersey area uh, in the beginning of uh, May, this coming May, I'm doing a lecture tour. I haven't done, I used to do lecture tours all over twice a year, but now COVID and whatnot, I haven't done a lecture tour for years. And I'm thinking this will be my last lecture tour. So, but I will be, uh, people can check my, my website or my uh, YouTube channel to uh, see what, because I will post the schedule and anybody in like New Jersey, New York area or in LA or in Palo Alto or in Las Vegas who wants to come and see me, you can come and see me. So that's what I do. 
Oh, that's amazing. I know. And I, having heard you speak before and having read your books and your articles, I know like you're a very powerful communicator and you are very well able to communicate your message. So it's really amazing. I, I didn't mention, you mentioned it, but I didn't mention also what really is like my halftime job at this uh, point in my life is the Kesha Wife Workshop, which is a workshop. What it is, is it's a spiritual growth group for married women. Yes. And um, the um, the uh, women who belong to it, I mean, it's, it's for any married Jewish woman who really, but it's, it's a, it is a workshop, we work on ourselves. So we have exercises all the time and we chart, we reward the body. Muster techniques, I was in a Muster vibe with Rob Leib Kellerman for 16 years. So we use Muster techniques and um, it's all Torah-based, it's not psychology. I'm not a psychologist, I'm not qualified to give a psychological approach to marriage. Oh, somebody's at the door. <laughs> okay, okay, no problem. So there have been women, it's an ongoing workshop. There have been women who've been in it for seven years since we started and women who've just joined recently. But it is, um, I like it better than actually writing books or giving lectures. And I'll tell you why. Because you read a book or you go to a lecture and you get inspired. You know, like uh, you're inspired, but how long does the inspiration last? And, and this is true of all of us all the time, you know? Oh, I, was, I heard a lecture, I'm so inspired. I read a book, I'm so inspired. I read the Hani Machlis book, I'm so inspired. I read Holy Woman, I'm so inspired. But how long does it last, you know? So um, the Kesher Wife, we call the Kesher Wife Club. Um, it's a club of women, it's actually like a support group too. It's like, because it's ongoing, you have to keep working yourself. Every week there's a meeting. Uh, if you can't catch it live, you get the recording. And people send in their success stories. And uh, I really love it that it's that people are like working on themselves consistently. I mean, nobody's 100% consistent, but and we all cheer each other on, you know, wow, that was the people writing their successes and we have to catch your wife of the week and, you know, so, uh, so that's really a main thing that I'm doing at this uh, at this juncture. That's beautiful. And I also want to just confirm that work, the workshop is for women who can even work on themselves, even if their husband isn't working on the marriage, if just the woman works on them, themselves. Yeah. If the husband is going to work on the marriage, most people end up in marital therapy. Okay. But in many or most cases, you have cases where the women are more spiritual and women want to like work on themselves. They are men. Don't. <laughs> so, uh, so the idea, one of our mottos is um, the only person you can change is yourself. Everybody comes into the Kesha Wife Club wanting to change their husbands, right? right. But members who have been married for 30 years, 40 years, we have a member who's been married 52 years. Wow. <laughs> and when she came in, she was still trying to change her husband. They want people to know, how like, can I change my husband? He's this way or that way. And our, our motto is the only person you can change is yourself. So smart. Change yourself, you change the dynamic of your marriage. And we have seen it over and over. People going from bad marriages to good marriages and good marriages to really great marriages. And uh, because the only person you can change is yourself. But when you change yourself, it's amazing. How the husband like somehow starts changing too. That's right, that's, the, yeah. yeah. Yes. Wow, amazing. Amazing. Well, as I mentioned earlier, you recently wrote a book called I've Been Here Before When Souls of the Holocaust Return. And this book 
and the concept behind it is truly, truly fascinating. I'll let you describe it in your own words. Please tell us what this book is about. Okay, so this is, you, you showed the book, I'll show it too for those who are watching the video. Yeah. A bit before when souls of the Holocaust return. It's about Gilgulim, reincarnated souls from the Holocaust, people born after 1945, who had dreams or uh, flashbacks, panic attacks, or some reason to suspect very strongly that they must have been in the Holocaust. So the people, you know, young children having Holocaust dreams, and of course they never read a Holocaust book or saw a Holocaust movie. And uh, over half of my uh, respondents, I, I, I did research and writing of this book for eight years. Wow. I had 450 people who, who filled in my online survey and another 100 people who, um, who, who wrote me emails. Since, since the book came out, I've had more than 100 more people who uh, filled in the online survey. But um, the, the evidence was that the, they, these people had no way to have had, to had these like very specific phobias and things from, from, from much connected to the Holocaust. And um, so I started to research it. Uh, the, I wanna share with you something that the, to put this in context, in Jewish context, because I'm sure people are listening who, uh, who don't necessarily, you know, believe in Gilgulim, although <laughs> you know, it's one of the questions you said you were gonna ask me, how Jewish is this? But yes. <laughs> the whole, the first half of the second chapter of the book establishes very clearly that Gilgulim is a Jewish concept, but the Nativa Shalom, the great Nativa Shalom, really the most uh, esteemed Hasidic writer of, this, of the uh, end of the 20th century, he wrote, he cites the Talmudic story of 400 boys and girls who were captured during the Roman conquest of Judea. And, you know, at the time after the temple was destroyed. And they were put on a ship bound for Rome, obviously to be exploited for regenerative purposes. And this is what the Nativa Shalom writes. The children realized, what, this is, he's quoting from the Talmud. The children realized what they were being taken for and wondered, if we throw ourselves into the sea, will we merit life in the world to come? The oldest among them told them, Hashem said, I will bring back from Bashan. I will bring back from the depths of the sea. And all 400 children jumped into the sea and drowned. The holy books tell us that these 400 children were sent once again into this world in order to complete their lives. And in the merit of their great self-sacrifice, they received divine spiritual levels that made them into great people. Wow. The Psalm goes on to say, in our generation as well, after the German enemies killed approximately 1 million pure holy Jewish children, Hashem is now sending these 1 million children back into our generation. These souls are fiery souls, souls of holy and pure people who were killed for the sanctification of God's name. This will also enable us to understand, I'm still quoting the Nativa Shalom. This will enable us to understand the wondrous phenomenon of the Bali Chuba in our generation, a phenomenon that also has no natural explanation. How is it that so many people, some of whom were at the top of the secular pyramid, are leaving all the status and honor they had had behind and coming to join Hashem's service while demonstrating incredible greatness and self-sacrifice. As we explained, these are fiery souls that had already been killed for the sanctification of God's name and were now sent back to this world. These souls truly are on greater spiritual levels and so their eyes are opened and they see things and hear things differently. 
So this is the phenomenon. It was, it was Mamash, a hidden phenomenon. Um, people, almost everybody who I researched said that they thought they were the only one. Wow. They actually had no idea that anybody else, you know, had these kind of dreams or flashbacks or experiences. And people, when I would, when they, I had an article that was published in Ami Magazine before, it was part of about three years or four years before the book came out. And that was how I got a lot of people. Also an article published in H.com. And that's when people started to, you know, like write in, oh, I didn't know that other people had, you know, uh, and I had this experience. And um, over half the people that I did the research with would not let me use their, their name in the book because uh, people are so embarrassed and it's like such a hidden phenomenon. But I wanted, I had three reasons I, I wanted to write this book. One is to let these people out of the closet. And you know, they're, they're, instead of feeling embarrassed or ashamed is to let people, you know, this is real. Get, let people, I have yet, I've talked to many audiences by Zoom and some, really, you know, some live audiences here in Israel, but because of COVID, mostly on Zoom, I have yet to talk to a single audience that hasn't had, like, you know, including like to South Africa, Philadelphia, uh, all places all over America, England. Um, I've yet to talk to a single audience that didn't have at least two or three people who afterwards wrote to me, yes, or afterwards, you know, said yes, yes, me too. I've like I've also like I'm also one of them. So this is a very widespread phenomenon. I wanted it to become known, uh, to let people feel comfortable in being who they are and with their experiences. The second reason I wrote it is because Rob Noah Weinberg always told me that, um, told all the people who would listen to him, all the teachers, that when you, whenever you teach, you have to tell people how much Hashem loves them. Right. It's the most important message. And when I would write articles, like for, uh, you know, mostly Rabbi Machlis doesn't let me use the word secular. So uh, <clears throat> let's say for non-Shomer Shabbos people, and I'd write articles, they would say, um, you know, I talk about how much Hashem loves you. I'd mention it. And they'd say, yeah, what about the Holocaust? So this book is my answer to what about the Holocaust? Because the Holocaust was a terrible chapter ending, but it was not the end of the story. For any, for any soul. It was not the answer. Rizal said in the 16th century that there are no new souls coming into the world. We're all old souls. Whether or not you are, speaking to those listening, whether or not you are a soul from the Holocaust, you are an old soul. And you've been here before. And you have, we all know this. We all know that we have our attractions and repulsions and you know what we gravitate naturally toward and what we can't stand. We have our fears. And all this comes from past lifetimes. And some things come from our childhood. But if you just go back to the childhood, you'll never find the answers to really explain a lot of the things that go on inside us. And we come back here to do Tikkun, because if, if you didn't have something to fix, you, you wouldn't be back here. Uh, the, the, um, this is really my favorite quote in the book. It's quoting from, uh, from, hold on. Quoting from the Ramchal. 
who wrote in the Dar Hashem. He wrote, God arranged matters so that man's chances of achieving ultimate salvation should be maximized. A single soul can be reincarnated a number of times in different bodies. And in this matter, it can rectify the damage done in previous incarnations. Similarly, it can also achieve perfection that was not attained in its previous incarnations. So you have two reasons given here. One is to tikkun, and one is because there's no ceiling of spiritual attainment. So it can achieve perfection that was not attained in previous incarnations. Even a very holy soul can come back and, 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 and attain, attain even a higher level of perfection. So that's the second reason that I wrote the book, was you know, to realize that Hashem loves us, and even people who have very hard lives, and you know, children die young, and all kinds of terrible, tragic things. But it's not the end of the story. And the third reason I wrote the book is to, so that everybody will get into this idea that I am a soul and I come into this world to do a tikkun. And so even if you have difficulty, difficult parents, difficult husband, you know, um, difficult situations in your life, to see it in the soul context puts everything in a different perspective. This is very, very true. Exactly. And, and so people know that they're not alone. Everybody struggles with something. You know, everybody really, really does. And to know that we're here to do a tikkun, to fix ourselves, it's really, maybe it doesn't make the situation better, but it gives us for sure a different understanding and perspective on it. It makes our attitude better. Yes. When you change your attitude, you change the situation. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. And so we were talking about the book and we were talking about souls coming back from the Holocaust. Could you share with us maybe a story or two from the book um, about souls coming back? Well, one thing phenomenon that is very, very interesting is a third, a third of the people who answered my online survey were born into non-Jewish families. That's fascinating. Yep. I saw that. Yeah. Half of them converted to Judaism as adults because they are Jewish souls. Right. And, uh, and so the question, I, I know many religious people find a very hard time that somebody who died as a Jew in the Holocaust would come back to a non-Jewish family. The um, Klausenberger Rebbe, who himself lost 11, a wife and 11 children in the Holocaust, he said to someone I interviewed right here in this living room, he said in 1970 to this person that, there were so many souls from the Holocaust who were trying to come back and there weren't enough Jewish mothers to receive them. So many of them were going to non-Jewish mothers. Right. There's yeah. another reason why um, people go to, why certain souls uh, chose, chose to go to non-Jewish uh, mothers. And that's because, I was, so I'll tell you one story. So this is a story of, of somebody who was born in Omaha, Nebraska. And uh, his name is was Arthur Rich, and uh, his mother and father were Presbyterian and Methodist. He didn't know a single Jew, Omaha, Nebraska. And, uh, and at the age of, I think, 21 or 22, he went into a Barnes and Noble store and he bought a, a book on six different kinds of mysticism. And one chapter was about Kabbalah. So when he, finished reading the chapter on Kabbalah, he started to have a dream that would recur for the next several years. In the dream, the first part of the dream, the dream had two parts. First part of the dream, he saw himself with, you know, side locks and a long, and a long beard. And he was writing it in a parchment scroll. He was writing a parchment scroll. And 
the thing that was really weird for him was, and he'd wake up and think, it's so weird, come on. It was he would see this, he'd see him, he, got, he understood this was himself, putting crowns on letters. Right. And he would say, he'd wake up and say, that's so crazy, who would put crowns on letters? Having no idea that we put crowns on letters. You know? For sure, yep. <laughs> Crowns on, on letters when they write in mezuzah or Torah or Megillah. So um, that was the first part of the dream, which I think was like, there's the kind of thing that the book is full of, things that like don't make sense. How could this guy who didn't know a Jew have a dream about a scribe putting crowns on letters? You know, it, like if it weren't if coming from a real past experience, it doesn't, like how, how do you know it? Uh, most Jews don't even know. You know, non-religious Jews don't know that, that, that we have crowns on letters and sacred scrolls. Right. So the second part of the dream, he saw himself in the gas chambers. Wow. Very angry. And he said, um, he saw himself angry at God and saying to God, after all I did to make sure that my children married Jews, this is what you do for me? I wish I wasn't even Jewish. He saw that in the dream. And then, of course, presto, Omaha, Nebraska. You right. know, I wish I wasn't Jewish. People who suffered so much in the Holocaust who said, who needs this? I don't want to come back as a Jew. Right. And then, of course, when they get back, they have to claw their, because they are Jewish, so they are attracted. This fellow started going on a chat room. And this would have been, I guess, in the, they had chat rooms, the 80s, the 90s. So I started talking to an Orthodox Jew. And bottom line is he converted to Judaism, Orthodox conversion with the Chicago based in, and he lives in, in Israel now, Northern Israel, and he's learning to be a sofer and he's putting crowns on letters. <laughs> so, uh, so, amazing. so yeah, it's amazing because, because the soul pulls you in a certain direction. You have to yeah. recognize that's what's going on. One of my other favorite stories, also about a non-Jew. I mean, I have many stories, most of the stories are about Jews, but um, I'm fascinated by the non-Jews because, and I didn't use, some people who responded to my survey and who wrote to me were the grandchildren or children of Holocaust survivors. And I did not use their testimony in the book because there's such a thing as inherited memory, yeah. you know, uh, inherited trauma. So I wanted the all my, case histories to be as really strong as possible. Like people who didn't know, who had no exposure to any, didn't, didn't know, you know, children are not, young children don't read Holocaust books and don't read, see Holocaust movies. And of course, most of the people in my book were uh, born in the first decade and a half after the Holocaust when there were no Holocaust movies and almost no Holocaust books. But um, still like a child who has like grandparents who are survivors could walk into the, you know, the living room, an unseen over here, you know, whispered conversation this time. So I didn't use their testimony. I wanted it to be very convincing. Yes. And um, so one of my favorite stories is Muriel Ann Millar, who was born in New Zealand. <laughs> you know, wow. Pentecostal, Pentecostal Christian, both of her parents were pastors and they had a church. And at the age of five, this child would say things, four or five, this child would say things like, I don't eat ham. I don't eat bacon. The real day of rest, the real Sabbath is, is Saturday, not Sunday. <laughs> <little> right. <laughs> and 
uh, like, where did she get this? She didn't know a single Jew. Wow. She didn't know a single Jew until at the age of 17, she got on a plane and came to Israel. <laughs> and uh, eventually, of course, converted to Judaism and uh, is living in Beersheba today. So um, it's just the Jewish soul is very strong. The Jewish soul is very strong. And um, the, the other stories I want to share, I'll tell you, I'll share one more story. Well, actually, it's too long. How are we doing time-wise? As I said, the second part of the book is about Tikkun. So um, there, are, there are really strong stories of, uh, of people doing Tikkun. Um, I love those Tikkun stories because like you, you, like you mentioned, I totally agree. We're here for our souls to do Tikkun. That's, that's why we're here. That's really pretty much the only reason that we're here to do our soul rectification. So I'll tell this story about the, this one woman named uh, Sarah David. She was, she was divorced from an abusive husband, and, but she was involved in a custody battle to get her children. And she had to fly from her home in Florida to Chicago, where the custody battle was taking place. And uh, she, although she had traveled all over the world um, until that point, she, and she'd actually taken Israeli citizenship at the age of 18, she made Aliyah, but then moved back to America. Um, at this point where she was involved in this custody battle that really just put her in a state of trauma, she started having a tremendous phobia, not a regular phobia of flying. She had this sense that uh, panic attacks, when she would stand in line in the jetway waiting to board the plane, she felt like she was standing in line to enter the gas chamber. Powerful. She was, and she would, uh, she, I'm gonna quote from the book. She says, uh, I was sure that we were all going to die entering that box, that giant box for our bodies. And yet I couldn't warn anyone to stop it. I got sick, shook uncontrollably with my heart racing, crying and fainting, but I kept flying because my children depended on it. I asked everyone for help. I took pills to relax. Nothing really helped. Flight attendants hugged me and gave me water, human comforts along the journey. And then on one flight, she, she was sitting in the back of the plane and a very kind flight attendant came over and asked if he could do anything that would help her. It still seemed that she was really in a state of panic. And she, she felt sitting in the back of the plane that, that all these bodies in front of all these people in front of her were bodies about to die. And she said, it would help me if I could sit closer to the front of the plane. And he came back and he said, I have good news for you. A couple in first class says, you know, that they would welcome you to sit with them in first class. So she went to first class and this couple were an elderly wealthy German couple. And uh, she sat next to the woman who tried to like help them, you know, calm down with engaging her in pleasant conversation, asking her about the best spas, golf courses and shopping areas in Florida. And Sarah writes, or she told me, I started to get involved in the conversation but was still dealing with fear and dizziness. Then she took out a book to read, first asking me if I had a book of my own to read. I did. I pulled out Nine Gates to the Hasidic Mysteries by Jerry Langer and proceeded to answer her polite interest in its subject matter. I told her it is a travel log from pre-World War II of an assimilated Czech Jew who traveled east through Galicia in order to understand firsthand the spirituality of the Hasidim of Eastern Europe. Her response stunned me. She said that the Jewish people are unbelievable, how once again they're rising in power to destroy the world, 
and all its progress, just as they had nearly done to Germany. Wow. With that blatant expression of German anti-Semitism, Sarah blacked out for a few moments. When she regained consciousness, she felt like she had died and come back. She was aware that this was no chance encounter. God had arranged this meeting, this face-to-face -face encounter with a high-ranking Jew-hating German in order to give her an opportunity to do what she had failed to do in her previous lifetime. She faced a choice. She could shrink away and obsequiously return to her seat in the economy, or she could stand up and defend her people. I'm not going to tell you what happened because I want you to read the book. <laughs> example of Hashem gives you, you don't have to know what your past life was. Hashem will give you opportunities in this lifetime to, to uh, rectify whatever you need to rectify. You don't have to know your past lifetime. But knowing that you've had past lifetimes and recognizing that some of the things that come to you are, are opportunities to do tikkun, I think is very helpful. Right. Yeah, no, it's so amazing. I, I, I read that story yesterday, the one that you were just reading. So I, it was very, very powerful. I also found it amazing. I also won't say the end of it, but I, it, it's so amazing how, how souls come back and they remember. And I understand in your book, it says because they come back so soon, relatively soon after the Holocaust, that veil is thin between the past lives. Yes. It's not, it's not normal to remember past lives. Most people the far a huge majority of people do not remember their past lives. Right. Adahan, who was born in 1943 in Chicago, she had a lot of past life stuff from the Holocaust. And she went to a Mikubal who told her the problem was that the veil between lives was too thin because she came back so soon. Right. She came back very soon. Perhaps my theory is people are coming, came back so soon. I was born in 1948. Uh, clearly a soul from the Holocaust. And uh, my theory is it's because Mashiach is coming. And so we, have, we had to come back. We couldn't wait. We usually wait a couple hundred years between lifetimes. But we, wow. we want to be here for Mashiach. So, uh, so we came back so soon. But then the veil's thin. And so it's, uh, it does, it, it can create problems. Right, right. Right. So I was going to ask you, and it's okay if you don't know the answer to this, but I just figure it's worth mentioning because we were talking about past lives. And I understand it's not necessarily to, to know past lives. Most people don't remember theirs. Most people don't know theirs. Some people do past life regressions. I know that you talk about it a little bit in the book. Are past life regressions, are, are they kosher? Is it okay to do it according to Jewish law? It is okay. And they are kosher, but Whenever you're dealing with deep levels of the subconscious, I think you always have to make sure that you're in the hands of a, a religious Jew. I own people ask me all the time, like who they can go to for past life regression. And I only have about four people that I recommend, all of whom are, are from Jews. Um, because like, I'll give you an example. The person I quote the most is uh, Ephraim Swirsky, who's a religious Jew who lives here in my neighborhood in the old city of Jerusalem. And uh, he spends the first hour before he'll let anybody like go back. So he spends the first hour just surrounding them with the light and love of God. He, have, he puts the context in it, the light and love of God. And so I don't tr trust people who, who, uh, I don't trust people who are not in that context of, you know, the, the, uh, the Torah outlook, you know. Um, totally. Another 
who I don't think she, I don't know what she's doing anymore, Fally Klein, who's a Hasidic woman who lives in, uh, who lives in Borough Park. So I quote her also several times in the book and she does, uh, she used to do past life regressions. I think she's working on something else now. Um, but she, I mean, she has an amazing story in there where she, uh, she came into, there, uh, there's somebody named uh, Moshe Swor, uh, Mars Swor, who prides himself as being the only orthodox Swardy past life regressionist. Wow, okay. <laughs> and uh, they, they, were, they were learning, they were in a course, and they came into this situation where this woman was being regressed. It was a woman who had been born in Africa. Uh, she was Italian or living in Italy, or I forget the thing. But she had such strong, she had words came to her, which were clearly, you know, the Fally Klein recognized them as Hebrew words. Yes. And, uh, and this person, I mean, it's a whole story that's in the book, but um, Fally has some really amazing experiences with, with passive aggression. Now, a person only needs to have passive aggression if they're bothered by something that they cannot heal. And then we usually, Hashem gives people the um, everything they need to do the tikkun they need to do in this lifetime. You don't need a past life regression. But there are people who are really tormented by certain memories or they have unresolved things and they feel they have to find out, like, where is this coming from? Um, so if they, do, if they want to do that, I think they have to be careful to go to somebody who is an Orthodox Jew. That is a really, really good point because that, you know, if you Google past life regressionists, there are a couple of out there, but they're mostly not Orthodox Jews. So it's very good to, to have that context of who to know, you know, to go to. Okay. Wonderful. Wow. Okay. Well, thank you so much, Rebetzin Sario Habit, for joining us today on America's Top Rebetzins. It was such a pleasure having you on the show, and we really all learned so much. May the learning we did today be for Rafua Shulema, for Lior Tovia Ben Haya Ashna, for Rav Shmuel Zalman Ben Hana, and also for Gabriella Tova Bat Naomi Leah. Thank you so, so much. You're very welcome. And I hope, you know, for the people, listeners will buy the book. You can get it in your local Jewish bookstore, but if you don't live right near a Jewish bookstore, you can. Uh, Vera will give you the link to order it from Manuva Publishers, and I hope you'll read the book because people, first of all, it's a good read. People tell me they can't, like they have tr- trouble putting it down. People accuse me I can't, couldn't get to, can't sleep because I'm reading the book. I can't <laughs> so uh, read, but also to, for that to to put your life in the context of your soul, who's come here to do them. I hope, I hope you'll read it and it'll help you. Yes, yes, it's a really good book. I can attest to it. Thank you. Very welcome.